This episode of Storylines is brought to you by Prairie Dog Film and Television. Prairie Dog Film and Television is dedicated to the creation and production of original scripted dramatic entertainment. Established in 1993 by Ronnie Scott, Prairie Dog has developed a world-class reputation for delivering high-quality, award-winning stories to an expanding global audience. Prairie Dog is best known for the critically acclaimed drama Blackstone and the new crime series Tribal, now airing on APTN and streaming on APTN Lumi. Be sure to follow Prairie Dog FTV on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Hey, we just want to say that this episode mentions instances of domestic violence and trauma associated with residential schools, so please be advised. Now, back to the show. Welcome to Storylines, a podcast brought to you by WIFTA, Women in Film and Television, Alberta. I'm your host, Sheena Rossiter. On this week's episode... To this day, I still believe in the power of story. It is the most powerful tool in the world. We're in conversation with director, screenwriter, and actor Georgina Lightning. If you're not on TV nowadays, you're invisible. And for me, I was invisible. Her vast and long career started when she was young. In 1990, with her three children in tow, she packed up and moved to Los Angeles to study at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And there, it was when her career took off. If you're going to be an Academy alumni, there's a certain standard. So after three years, I was ready for any role. Bring it on. She played supporting roles in productions like Walker, Texas Ranger, The West Wing, and Trickster. Georgina is known for her role in Blackstone for playing the character Tracy Bull. And most recently, she guest stars in the APTN series Tribal. What do you want to be called? How about Chief? She's a big advocate for First Nations people on screen. In 2007, she founded Tribal Alliance Productions, which is dedicated to representing Indigenous people in front of and behind the camera. Georgina, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Take us back to that moment where you had an epiphany as a young child of why you wanted to start acting. Take me back to that moment. What happened and how did you realize you wanted to be an actor? All right. So six years old, you know, I'm a descendant of residential school. My dad was institutionalized from three to 18 years old. So I'm a product of that. So usually when my dad would come home, us three girls would just run as fast as we could to the bedroom and hide under the bed. This one particular day, I was sitting by myself watching TV, and I was so engrossed in what was ever going on on the television. So I had not even heard the loud truck pull up. And then my dad walks in, and then I froze my dad sits down, and he lights up a cigarette. He's got a drink in his hand, as usual, watching the TV. And whatever happened at the end, and I don't even know what it was, I could hear a sniffle. Without moving my head, I looked as far as I could, straining my eyes to see my dad. And I saw that he was, like, emotional, like something was okay in that one moment. So I got up, and I walked slowly out the room, and I went, oh, my God, I, like I walked out unscathed. And, and it was so profound for me. Like it, I planted a seed and I went, I want to do that. I want to be that. That was power. It was so much power in that moment to make my dad, who was like the biggest monster I had ever known, 
uh, in my childhood, to be tender for a second, that was power. To this day, I still believe in the power of story. It is the most powerful tool in the world. Every issue can be addressed. We can expose things that no one would ever expose with media. It's very powerful. So that's why I'm still in it. That's an amazing moment, especially at six years old, to have that feeling and to still vividly remember that. The way you just described that right now, I felt almost like I was there in the living room with you, observing your dad have those tears come down his cheeks. That's very powerful. Yeah, it was (laughs) huge. So you talked there a little bit about the power of story. You decided to get into film then, at that moment as a young child. What were some of your first acting roles, and how did you feel when you actually could convey emotion out of people? How did that make you feel? In school, because of that six-year-old experience, when we start to select our electives, I was always in music and drama. That's it. So from there, I went to the Citadel Theater, and I was studying there. And Doll's House was my first play that I did on a big major stage at the Citadel Theater. I continued on from the Citadel to go to the U of A. It wasn't not until I was 19 when I went back to school and I realized I'm going to be a mother and I have to be a completely different parent than than I had. So I'm going to have to change the game a lot. And out there in the world, you have to be educated at that point. So I went back to school, and the drive that I got from being a mother, the connection, and the first experience of real love in my life for the first time, that compelled me to completely change my life and dedicate to trying to be successful so I can accomplish healthy, decent, good environment for my daughter. Well, you really went for it, because not only after you had your first daughter, but you went to Los Angeles with your three children at the time. That seems like a big move, and it seems super intimidating, not just to move countries, but also with a family. And you're taking a big risk because you went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Tell me how that all came about. There was no way in the world I could imagine that in that moment, going to school because I was a married woman. My upbringing as a child moved with me into my adulthood. I was in a very abusive, dysfunctional marriage. So I attracted identical surroundings and environment. I had a coat hanger beating that was probably so severe, like I couldn't find one spot on my body where I could relax or place my head on the pillow because there was pain everywhere. Something in my head, a voice was saying, you're a battered woman. And so I picked up the phone and I called. And from that moment, it took me at least a month to go to my first meeting and then probably a couple months later to actually start talking. And I heard common stories identical to mine all over the city. Well, I can only imagine it was such an intimidating process in the beginning and then Mm -hmm. you had to ease into it. Absolutely. But then to go from that situation, you really overcame that. Oh, my God. I just started freeing myself. Like the more you go to therapy and start addressing your unresolved issues, I changed. I started transforming into somebody completely different and strength started coming out. And the real potential of who I was supposed to be started staring back at me in the mirror. And it was just like so empowering. Every human being deserves respect. You deserve respect from every human being that you're engaged with. 
encountered with. So not only your children, your family members, your siblings, your mother, your father, your husband, your partner, your colleagues, every human being should respect you and you teach people how to treat you. So change the platform. So I did. I got a divorce, packed up a three-ton U-Haul, a flatbed. I had flown to L.A. a few times. I applied. I auditioned. I went to the panel and board meeting interview, and I got a letter of acceptance. The thing is, you move to L.A. with three children. There's enough motivation there. I had to be the very best because the Academy only invites you to participate for one year. You have to make the cut every year. That's the different from any other film and acting school that I had researched. That was really stressful because it's like, okay, we're going there and hopefully we're going to go for three. I don't know. It might be for a year. And if I, if they think I'm not talented or I'm not cut for it, I'm going to get the boot. And what am I going to do with three children in Los Angeles? So I got accepted and I went there, started school three days later, and I got accepted for the second year. And then after second year, I got into third year, which was repertory. So I was one of the top 15. And then then I got the Michael Toma Award, which is the most progressed actor in the school. That's amazing. That was motivation from three children. (laughs) And the desire of story. That's, That's my passion. I believe it's my purpose. When you got down there, that was back in 1990. We're coming up to 30 years since you packed up and moved. When did your career really start to take off? While you're at the Academy for the three years, you're not allowed to have an agent. You're not supposed to audition or anything. If you're going to be an Academy alumni, there's a certain standard. Robert Redford, Danny DeVito, they've got a lot of great alumni that graduate from that school. So you have to be ready because no one wants you saying you're from the Academy if you suck. So after three years, I was ready for any role. Bring it on. And then I got into the film industry as an actor and it was a completely different reality for me because I was like I was stereotyped so bad so it's not just that I was a woman I was also a native so a native woman two strikes against me in the film industry so it was very difficult tons of rejection how much were you put in a box oh my god that's all I lived in I was put in a crate in the back room in a warehouse (laughs) that was not visited very often I think maybe one or two auditions a year to be honest, because I was also managing my three children. My daughter is actually the one that got the first role. She got a lead role in a movie called Three Ninjas Knuckle Up. There was three boys and a girl, and she was the little Donald Duck girl, sassy girl who kept the ball in line. And that was Crystal. That was after the first year we got there. How did that make you feel? Because you said you got put in this box that was just forgotten about in the back of the warehouse, metaphorically speaking. But you go through all this work. You work so hard. And all the obstacles are still stacked against you. You then created your own opportunity. You created a production company in 2007, the Tribal Alliance. How did things start to change then, or did they? Oh, yes, it was very slow build. I had been on so many sets as an acting coach with my children, managing and coaching my children. And then people would see my work with the kids, the difference before and after I prepared my children and then they go and it's like, listen to the director. If it's a more technical director, they really don't give a lot of notes or know how, a lot of them, how to work emotionally with actors or children. After they would do a rehearsal, and if there was none of that, I would pull my my child aside and work with them. 
and they'd go in, it would it would be a completely different performance because I'm emotionally based and a performance and an actor has to be emotionally available. So you have to demonstrate that with all honesty based on the character. So I started getting work that way. I started working outside of my family as an acting coach. So I was on so many sets and it was a project we were working on called Dreamkeeper. Shane Chasing Horse is a member of a Lakota street gang. Think you got a bad temper, Thunderboy? I'm a tornado. And he's running for his life. We were shooting it in Calgary. It was a Hallmark $40 million production. Steve Barron was the director, and John Jaffe was the DP at the time, and John Fusco was the writer. It was that one. I was in six different categories. I was hired as an acting coach for 105 speaking roles, which is the largest speaking cast. Yes, the first roles. time ever. I mean, there's, you know, you can say, well, dances with wolves. This is speaking roles I'm talking about, not extras. Yes, there was tons of people on dances, but which was a revolutionary film for us in a certain way. But this was the first native speaking ensemble that was ever put together. Was that overwhelming to coach 105 people? Well, I was intimidated going in. I had no choice. I had to go there and I had to make this work. And again, my perfectionist kicked in and went, you're going to damn well do this and you're going to do it good. I went to the first rehearsal with the director and the DP and just hearing the passion in their voice for their work and mine was equivalent for my work. And I went, this is going to be amazing. This is going to be life altering. And it was. Let's talk about the significance of that as well. 105 speaking roles. So you were saying this was finally speaking roles for people from the indigenous community, and it was on a large scale as well. Was that showing that the needle was moving in terms of representation, that people weren't just background extras, that they actually literally had a voice? Yes. And I thought that in demonstrating such a beautiful movie that was well shot. I mean, it was gorgeous. That's a gorgeous film. And there's six different nations that are represented. It's like a journey of a grandfather and his grandson who's going down the wrong path. And his grandfather's he knows he's dying. So his last attempt to change his grandson's direction is to take him to the Gathering of Nations. Shall I tell you how it was told by the older ones to my grandfather's grandfather long ago? This is how it was told to me. Let me tell you, and you remember to pass it down. For this is how it happened long ago. And so they're on this road trip, and he tells them all these different stories. The Blackfoot, the Mahnamach, the Salmon people, the Lakotas. There was so much different language and dances, and they were so respectful to the content, which was something that I had never witnessed before. Usually, the cultural accuracy is all warped. But this one, they made sure they honored and validated each tribe. They made sure there was representatives and language experts from each linguist, from each tribe. I mean, I learned dances and languages to help the actors. Anything to do with the performance, which is wardrobe, hair, makeup, I got involved in all departments. Then at the end, it was like, Georgie, we would have to give you like six credits at least, at least. Can we just call you an associate producer? I said, sure, whatever. I mean, that didn't matter to me. Was that a step in the right direction for you? That completely changed everything for me because they were very respectful and it was such an amazing working environment that they created. I mean, I worked seven days a week around the clock, 24-7, and 
just to make sure, I mean, there would be a couple actors coming in for another story and a couple going out. So it's like the new shift is coming in. Get together, work with them, teach them the language, get the language stuff, the dances and all that, that other stuff. Talk to the wardrobe, make sure everything's technically correct. I mean, there's always stuff going on. And then working through the scenes, the emotional beats and all that kind of stuff, making sure that the caliber of acting was to the standard that they needed. Because a lot of these actors, you've got to remember, 105, and there's hardly any... At that time, there was hardly anyone that was trained. The ones that were trained were, had, had major roles. I think that's what set the tone for the rest of my career. Pretty soon, I had an opportunity to direct my first feature, Older Than America, which I, I wrote the story. And, and so I'm talking to different directors, and I was like, oh my God, there's no way that person, that person doesn't even get it. There's no, they don't understand residential school. They don't understand that this, that, and the other. I mean, First Nations stuff is so completely different. And because of the lack of education and real honest connection with us, we're just people that from a history book, <laughs> so they don't really know who we are. For our listeners who maybe don't know about Older Than America, what's it about? It's a woman's journey, similar to mine. So it's a woman whose mother instead of a father. So it's a woman whose mother was in residential school. And then she saw six children being killed and buried in an unmarked grave. I'm seeing things, Johnny, just like my mom did. And so she exposed that when she got older and got thrown in a mental institute and given a lot of electric shock therapy so she would be silenced from reporting to the authorities that the Catholic residential school did this. You knew the truth and you kept silent. They thought they were taking base savages, the devil's children, and converting them into civilized human beings. So years later, her daughter starts having dreams and nightmares about experiences that her mother's having and things that are connected to residential school that she never knew about. And that starts her investigation and finding out what really happened with her mom and why she was in there. And in the end, she got her mom out. Through telling some of the stories that you've created over the years or that you've starred in, does it create a greater understanding? Are people more understanding and have have things gotten better for Indigenous people in daily life because of being represented on screen? I think it transforms anybody if you can see yourself reflected, especially as a child, if you can see yourself on there. If you're not on TV nowadays, you're invisible. And for me, I was invisible. You know, NBC, ABC, all the Fox, all the, they all have diversity departments. So I was participating in many conversations about affirmative action and about inclusiveness. And after 10 years of that, that was my last, last straw. 10 years of being a participant in dialogues about inclusiveness and finding, recruiting people for the acting programs, for the directing programs and producing programs. So after 10 years... Last pilot season, you got to remember, pilot season in L.A. is hundreds of shows. So how many Native Americans were offered a role in last pilot season? Zero. This is awkward silence, zero. And I went, oh, wow. So in all of your producing labs, all of them, have you had any of our First Nations people as a producer on any one of the lots in this city? and that was a zero, and then directing. Anybody, even assistant first AD, zero. So it was zero across the board. So I said, do not ever call me again. This is obviously lip service. I mean, it was just so insulting to, to know all that work went into recruiting people and that it, they were going through this thing, and there was zero, especially in the acting category, not even one. 
that was disgusting. Are things happening now? We're in 2020, and because of the Me Too movement, and because of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada, it's now transformed everything. It wasn't that long ago that we got the verdict on Harvey Weinstein, and it was guilty. What were you doing that day, and how did you react to that? Everyone was waiting. It couldn't be anything but guilty. There's no way. But then you have that little thing goes, but what if? So I was watching it on the hour. And finally, it's like the verdict came in and he was guilty. And it was just something happens inside of your body. Just like you get goosebumps and you're emotional and you don't understand what it is. It's such a hodgepodge of years of oppression. I'm an advocate for missing and murdered women, so I'm very connected to assault and battery against women. And I come from domestic violence. I was raised in violence against, you know, my mother and then me and all my aunties. And it's just like, it was such a victorious moment because it's women and it's in my industry. And for somebody to be held accountable on that platform, huge, huge victory. How did the Me Too movement change your life? This two strikes against me being a female and being a native, all of a sudden, it was the trend, and it, well, it is the trend right now, to hire First Nations females. So I actually even got a call from Chris Ayer. Chris Ayer is our, our, our top and most successful acclaimed director in Indian country in North America. Chris called me and says, Georgie, would you want to direct on a feature film that I'm producing on? And I was kind of shocked because, like, why aren't you directing it? I've never been handed any jobs from any man in this whole entire career of mine. <laughs> it just it seemed so weird. And he said, because I actually went to a meeting because of the Me Too movement. I'm sitting in this meeting as uh, thinking I'm going to get a, a directing gig. And the guy clearly said to me, we don't want a male. We're not even interviewing male. We want a female indigenous director. And we don't know how to find him. So we hired you to give us a list. And he said, well, there's not really a list. There's a few. That's just the way it is. Because we've never had opportunities. In the States, where I was started my filmmaking career, you have to raise every penny on your own. There is no such thing as a studio deal. There's no development deal. There's zero for First Nations. We still, to this day, have never had a film financed or funded or supported by Hollywood. It's always independent. So I had to raise my own money. I had to get my own support system, everything to make my first feature. So you have to do it from concept. You have to write it. You have to do everything yourself, financing, and then you have to distribute it. How are you going to distribute something when there's no market and distributors don't know how to market Native American contemporary content? So that was a whole other thing I had to figure out. You're all on your own in that industry. Is that market growing now? Yes. Netflix and Amazon, the internet, and the information highway completely transformed the industry and set a different platform in a completely different way for all kinds of content. So films that wouldn't get a second look are now streaming all over the world. And how does your production company also help create some of those opportunities? As we mentioned, you were one of the founders for Tribal Alliance Productions back in 2007, giving opportunities both in front of and behind the camera for Indigenous people. How has that helped change things? The whole uh, internship program and, and incentive programs, we kind of designed that before I started Tribal Alliance with Native Media Network and providing opportunities because when we learned it was a zero, zero, zero across the board from the industry, we had to create it ourselves. So it's like, who's making films? Let's call them. Let's create opportunities for these people. Because I really thought my job at that point was to empower other storytellers. 
I didn't think I was a storyteller. I didn't think of myself in, in that way. You know, so I was always empowering other people and I raised money for Sundance Native Program and for other film initiatives and for other film producers to develop their content better, you know, the money they needed to get into a theater with real actors, to fly them in, house them, to support uh, student filmmakers on their thesis projects and to talk to film classes about Native content and give incentives to screenwriters of all races to write Native content correctly and authentically. I want to talk a little bit about some of your acting roles. You're really well known for your role in the show Blackstone. You play the character Tracy Bull. Again, for our listeners who might not be as familiar with the show, what's Blackstone about? And tell us a little bit about your character that you play. Andy, whoa! I need you to do something for me. I don't know what to do. I'm here for you. Anything you need. The seed for Blackstone was created by late Gil Cardinal a wonderful filmmaker that lived in Alberta and struggled as a residential school survivor, foster child, 60 scooper, all that kind of stuff. So he wrote the original based on dysfunctional Indian country. It was so raw and organic and true to the the nation that he wanted to do a series of this because there's so many things that happen in Indian country. You know, there's humor, there's dysfunction, and there's really complex and interesting characters. So that's what Ron wanted to do, is put a showcase together to bring drama to a reality for First Nations as a Native native written, produced, and directed uh, series. So that's what he did. And Tracy Bull was, was created um, as a train wreck Tracy, is what I called her. <laughs> it was interesting when I read it. It was for second season. And I was in L.A. and, hey, Georgie, will you audition for this? I put it on tape. And then I get a call. I show up there, and I did a lot of extensive backstory and a lot of prep for my character. And I didn't know how it would be received because nothing previous to that had allowed me to be a true artist the way I was trained. You know, most of them were stereotypical. They're one-dimensional. There was nothing that I could sink my teeth in, and that gave me satisfaction. So... This was the first time that I got to work where the director respected me and he allowed me to bring my ideas to the table and he allowed me to improvise and things that a lot of a lot of people are intimidated by but I was so hungry to do this and he allowed it. He let me be a real actor and it was just the funnest most incredible e- she's a, you know she's a train wreck Tracy right she's got every issue you can think of but it was so fun to play a multi-dimensional complex role i loved it the way you're describing that it sounds like it just really stuck with you was that one of your favorite roles that you ever played i'm sure you absolutely you didn't even oh, hesitate yeah. i i mean i was nominated for a canadian screen award for that but natives haven't been to the arena of the emmys or the oscars until this year for the first time West Studi won an Oscar. He got he was an honorary recipient of an Oscar for the first time in history. That's huge. But that never but that happens in Canada on a regular now. Your guest starring as well right now in the APTN series Tribal. How does it make you feel that you could be a role model for the next generation? I think my I think perseverance. I mean, cuz they just have to take a look at 1990 is when I went to LA to have a film career. And it's 2020. So that's 30 years of digging through the trenches when there was zero opportunity. There was no Blackstone back then when I went there. There was no APTN, you know, producing Native content that was drama, that was episodic. Nothing like that existed. 
The fact that now we have seven people in in development deals and I happen to be one of them, it means no matter how bleak it looks out there, if you take a look at me, I'm a living example that if you just persevere and are able to handle the billion no's that you're going to get, you will eventually break through and you'll have success. I promise. If you dedicate your life to anything, you're going to have success. Georgina, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. I'm Georgina Lightning, and these are my three tips for starting out in the industry. Number one, perseverance. You have to get ready with thick skin when you're entering this industry. It is the most cutthroat industry, and there's a million no's before you get your first yes. So you have to be tough and persevere and keep moving on. Know that you were born to do this. This is your gig. So number two is story. Your story is the gold. That is going to be your access card to anything. If you have a brilliant story, you can pick up an iPhone and tell that story, and it will travel and get to the right ears, I promise. So number three is relationships. Any person that you meet in the film industry, I don't care what role they play or what position they play or are doing, every relationship in this industry will carry you through to the next level. So be kind and be respectful and responsible with every relationship you develop in this industry because it it never leaves you. That's our show for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in to Episode 6 of Storylines. Storylines is a women in film and television Alberta production that's made possible with the generous support from Alberta's Ministry of Culture, Multiculturalism, and Status of Women. Special thanks to Fava for its support on this production. Thanks very much to this week's guest, Georgina Lightning. The show's executive producers are Elise Graham, Ava Carvinen, Samantha Quantz, and Teresa Winnick. Shannon Giles is our associate producer and social media coordinator. The original Storylines theme is composed by Aaron Macri and Laura Rabode, and I'm your host, senior producer, and audio technician, Sheena Rossiter. Make sure you tune in every week where you can catch the latest Storylines episode, where you can hear interviews and get tips from leading women in film and television. You can check us out and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, follow your Storylines. We can't wait to see where they lead. 